Is that not just the sweetest thing ever? Uh, hey, you know, I'll tell you too, that's, I was telling Tammy last night, I said, that's a, that's a healthy thing to watch. Um, it's, it's a reception guys don't often get to see unless it's filmed. But it's also a healthy thing to watch for a Christian because there's many a person, men and women, who would look at their father and go, ah, I had a crummy dad. Um, and it, 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 it changes your view of a heavenly father. And when you see something like this where there's health, uh, that's just a good picture. It's a healthy picture, spiritual picture. All right, let's go to God's word together. This is a, um, Matthew chapter 4. Oh, what the? Matthew chapter 4. And starting in verse 23, uh, we're really looking at the the Beatitudes, the first uh, hunk of verses in uh, chapter 5, but we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew, and this is God's word. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the uh, first seminary class I ever took uh, was from RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, which is where Dr. Young is a graduate, where Kyle is taking classes now, and so is Chris Luke. Um, And believe it or not, the class was here at Grace of Ann. It was their first uh, foray into extension education. This is a long time ago, 20 years ago. And uh, before the Betty Ann room was demolished, and it was the Betty Ann room. Before it was the Betty Ann room, it was classrooms, and that's where those, the, the, those seminary classes would, would, would go on. And they would bring a, a professor up with an intern. The intern would drive so the professor could chill out and keep his head. Um, and then the class was six to nine on Friday and then nine to five on Saturday all day. And it was, I think, four or five times and you were getting a, the, the equivalent of, you know, you're getting a live professor, uh, real seminary education, but man, it was grueling. It was grueling. But I'll say this. Uh, and so I think the first two or three classes that they had were here, and then they moved to second pres, and then they went online and all that stuff. But anyway, the first class I ever took, seminary class, is called the Sermon on the Mount. And I remember my teacher's name was Dennis Ireland. Did you have him, Will Albritton, Dennis Ireland? Uh, one of his lips never moved. It just, he was the strangest fellow. 
Um, but I would say of every class I ever took, that was the most impacting. And likely it was because it was the first one and all that, okay? But um, man, if something is going to shore up your belief system, the Sermon on the Mount will do it. In fact, I'll tell you, I brought some books here. Um, you know, I, I've, I've got probably 13 or 14 commentaries on the book of Matthew. This is just on the Sermon on the Mount. This whole book is just on these three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount. Not impressed yet? This is just on the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of the Bible. Not impressed yet? This is just on the Sermon on the Mount. Hard read, too, A.W. Pink. Um, This is probably Dr. Young's favorite book. If you said, Dr. Young, what should I read to... uh, Further my understanding of the gospel of grace, I think that he would probably say, get Martin Lloyd-Jones' studies on Sermon on the Mount. Um, I've read this thing at least a couple times, and uh, it is, uh, it, it's, it's awesome. All to say, imagine that. This is, this is deep stuff, man. Three chapters of the Bible, a giant not re- uh, volumes written on it. Um, now, now, why? Well, first of all, let's talk about the idea that it's a sermon, um, the text doesn't say it's a sermon. The publisher's note says it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's been famously called the Sermon on the Mount, um, but it was not called that before Augustine of Hippo, who was a northern African theologian in around the 4th fourth and 5th century or so. Um, and so he called it a sermon. Why is it known as a sermon? How is it distinguished from other teachings of Jesus? Well, um, it's unique in that it's a continuous and contained set of Jesus' teaching. It's kind of think of bookends on both sides. Uh, it's Jesus starting here and ending here. It's all three chapters of Jesus talking. Um, elsewhere, you know, other, other gospel writers uh, will record events and teachings of Jesus. Matthew does too. Um, and uh, there are many repeated ideas and all that, but they're not one contained unit. In fact, by the way, when you read the Gospels, just straying slightly, when you read the Gospels and you see Matthew uh, quotes Jesus as saying something, and then Luke writes it in a slightly different way, and then Mark writes it in a slightly different way, or they include different details. One writer includes these details, another writer includes these details. I think a lot of times Christians go, oh no, crisis of heart. Does this thing, is this, does this thing have uh, integrity? Uh, one guy's saying this and one guy's saying that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you all left here today and wrote down your experiences at Grace of Anne or wrote down what Dr. Young said and did and what the worship was like or whatever, you would all come up with different, you, we would come up with your own perspective, wouldn't you? Uh, you would use certain words. You would, you would express a sentence differently. That's a normal part. That, that validates the scriptures, not... not, uh, not uh, trips them up. Uh, so, so rest in that. But all to say, here we've got in the Sermon on the Mount, this big hunk of scripture that obviously has a beginning, all right? Uh, Jesus sees the crowds. He sits down. He opened his mouth. I mean, that's the beginning. And then at the end, you've got, a, you've got an ending point. He's got a big finish. There are illustrations. There's application. Um, there's a, there, there's a, a main point uh, that's always good to have in a sermon is a point. Um, so uh, I, I would say, um, in fact, let me give it to you. Hey, hold on. There you go. Here's our main point uh, today. Our main point is that God wants your deepest and authentic happiness, all right? So there's a main point to the Sermon on the Mount. And um, 
you, 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 what is the main point per Jesus? Now, I've kind, of, I've kind of applied it to you, but what's the main point per Jesus? Um, you've probably heard me say this dozens, if not hundreds of times, and you may or may not even notice it, but I have described the, the, the uh, sermon topic of the Sermon on the Mount as heart righteousness. Many, many, many times, heart righteousness. That's a very personal application of it. I mean, you see that Jesus uh, shows that God looks on the heart and requires a heart righteousness, not an external um, rule-following righteousness to try to be good enough, but a heart righteousness, okay? But another way you could put it would be this, the kingdom of God. Um, without heart righteousness, no one will see or enter the kingdom of God. Um, that, that's kind of the idea of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, notice a couple other things by way of structure with this sermon, okay? Um, you know, in... Um, Oh, in chapter 7, verse 28, um, you, don't, you don't have to look at it. I'm going to kind of jump through. In, in chapter 7, verse 28, it says, and when Jesus finished saying these things. Well, that phrase repeats itself again in chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing the 12, and then in chapter 13. And when Jesus had finished saying these parables, chapter 19. When Jesus had finished say, these sayings, all right, those seem to be kind of like uh, uh, markers, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And after each one of these narrative markers, there's a, there's a discussion of something. And it comes packaged in different words. But if you read it thoughtfully, you will see uh, from many different angles that Jesus then goes on to talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those are synonyms. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus finished saying these things and he launches into the discussion of the kingdom of God. Um, here's, what, here's what he will say. In chapter 7, verse 21, which is a part of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's on Jesus' mind. Chapter 10, verse 7. Uh, Proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is uh, at hand. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is no uh, one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Um, Chapter 12, if it is by the Spirit that I cast out demons, uh, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Chapter 13, um, uh, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Um, And I counted, ladies and gentlemen, 19 other mentions of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in the Gospel of Matthew. And this one, the 20th, which is in uh, chapter 26, verse 1, uh, Jesus had finished saying these things. He institutes the Lord's Supper. And what does he say when he institutes the Lord's Supper? He says, I will not drink again of this fruit, of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So note that as Jesus is moving through his earthly life and ministry, he's not just experiencing things and, and getting carried along by the crowd and getting caught up in a movement and, uh, and cr- he gets kind of popular and gets some fame. He's not like a Kardashian. Uh, Jesus is driven. He knows what he's come to do and he's got a specific thing on his mind. It is the kingdom of God. And he forcefully speaks of all that. Well, and you see that there's a great eschatological sweep in all that too, right? Um, the kingdom of God, um, that God is uh, one day gonna restore all things and make things all right. And, and um, the kingdom of God, um, especially in Christ, that's pretty lofty and noble subject matter, isn't it? The, the, the kingdom of God is very eternal in concept, isn't it? The kingdom of God. Here's what it looks like applied very personally. Um, and I've taken care to write, write it this way. God wants your deepest and authentic happiness. 
Heart righteousness, yes. The kingdom of God, yes. But how does that affect you as you're walking around through this hard, confusing life? God wants your deepest and authentic happiness. That's the point, is that you live a life the way God designed you to live it because it's the best thing for you. Heart righteousness looks like this in you. It's a joy, all right? So to be drawn into the kingdom of heaven by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ is to be brought to a place where the deepest human needs can be met. God wants you to be happy. Um, the point of, uh, from the beginning to the end of, of saving work is to create and collect and uh, coalesce uh, God's particular people into, into a worshiping group um, and brought into this new dominion. So um, one more thing about this before we uh, kind of jump in. You've heard me say this probably a bunch of times too, that we live right now, you and me, within the tension of the already and the not yet. If that's not new to your if that's new to your ears, let me just tell you, um, it was new to my ears when I took the Sermon on the Mount class. In fact, I'd never even heard of the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I was working here. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, I mean, I'd read it. I'd read the Bible through. I'd read the Bible through. I'd read these chapters, but I didn't know, oh, Sermon on the Mount. Oh, you know, I'm taking this class and uh, talking about heart righteousness and all that stuff. And then the already and the not yet, I'd never heard that before the, the Sermon on the Mount class. And, uh, and uh, it's a, yeah, there's a balloon up there. Sorry. Um, distracting me. Um, But uh, the idea is this, friends, that the kingdom of God is inaugurated, but not yet consummated. In other words, Jesus has come, hasn't he? Yes, he lived on this earth. Uh, He had a life in ministry. He died on the cross. He was uh, uh, resurrected, ascended, now holding session, kingly session in heaven. He came. He's going to come again. When he comes again, everything's going to be set aright. We live within the tension of the already and the not yet. That's a critical thing for you to know about um, our positions as Christians here on this earth. It's not that Christ um, isn't king. He is king. He does have a kingdom, uh, but he's, he's come, he'll come again. And don't think of it as like a presidential election. What's confusing about that is you go, oh, well, uh, somebody's voted in and then there's an inauguration under the president. That's not the idea. He's inaugurated. He is the king. He's not waiting to become the king. He's been inaugurated. He is the king. But the consummation of the kingdom has not yet happened. In other words, he has not returned to set all things aright, redeeming all things forever, okay? Critical stuff for you to understand. All right, now all of the above for the past 10 minutes has been uh, important to say because there's a, a theological bent and not in a healthy way concerning the Sermon on the Mount. Um, some have argued that the Sermon on the Mount is really totally irrelevant for you and me. Uh, they go, well, you know, it's this kind of thing. Uh, it's irrelevant as to living in the now. It's, um, it's um, nothing more than sewing some stuff together that Jesus has said, and it allows us to dismiss the authority. They'll say, well, it doesn't really apply to us now. It's kind of a future thing. Um, and so uh, that's why you have, um, uh, by the way, Bibles that don't have um, the Old Testament in, the, in there. People print up the Bible, they go, ah, well, you know, it's really the, the obsolete stuff. It's not obsolete. It's not obsolete. Um, and, and nor is this. Um, notice in verse uh, 17 uh, of chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, what comes right, right before that? Well, uh, verse 12 of that same chapter, John the Baptist had been arrested. Um, Jesus withdraws into Galilee. And uh, 
he, he uh, lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people, oh, hang on, that's Dr. Young. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then Jesus is talking about the kingdom uh, of heaven being at hand. Now, so make no mistake, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is preaching to his disciples um, and he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's not some ancient malarkey. It's not some alien state. state. Um, it's, it's Jesus talking about everyday redeemed life. That's what's going on here. And to the passage we go. Uh, chapter five, verse one. Seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now we look at that and we go, okay, blah, 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 blah. Let's get to the meat of it. There's so much in that right there, ladies and gentlemen. He sees the crowds. Remember, he's super famous and crowds are following him all over the place. He goes up on a mountain and he sits down. Now what's the, you heard me talk about this before. What's the significance of him sitting down? It's, it's rabbinical, all right? In the United States, most preachers stand up and they, mm, they preach this way. Not so back then. The teacher would sit down and it was this, this posture of, uh, okay, here we go. I sit down because my knees were bad. I, don't, I guess I still like it. But um, uh, he sat down and then this, he opened his mouth. That is, that is prophetic language. It's so Old Testament-y. It's so prophet-like that he opened his mouth. He sat down and he opened his mouth. And to whom is he speaking? Very explicitly, it says, his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples. Now, when you go to the end of the sermon, uh, at the end of chapter 7, it says that um, Jesus finished these things in verse 28, uh, saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So obviously, there were crowds within the hearing. But who is Jesus addressing explicitly? Matthew could have said Jesus uh, spoke to the crowds. It doesn't say that. He is addressing his disciples and in a very real way. That means he's talking to us. He's addressing his disciples, and here's what he says. He opens his mouth, um, and he's very specific, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, he sits down, he opens his mouth, and he uses this very particular word, blessed. That word can be translated also as happy. In fact, I'm not sure if the King James Version has happy or not, but okay, some do. Um, and and, and it, it, um, you know, a Greek version of the Old Testament, we'll see, you'll sometimes see a, a, um, the word happy in there translated into English. But anyway, the idea is blessed or happy, and that's what I mean. God wants your deepest and authentic happiness. Not happiness like a good feeling, like a bubble bath. Not happiness as you define it, but happiness as in the flourishing of who you are as a person. You know, like when you've got a plant, we've got a, we've got a basil plant right now that is not flourishing. Um, you know, I bought it at the, they didn't have any fresh basil at the fresh market, but they had a live plant. And I was like, well, good, I'll use that. Uh, 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 you know, and you pull all the, you know, the, the life off of it and you throw it in a dish and it's still kind of, and there's some brown stuff and it's still a little thing and it's kind of cold by the window and it's just not flourishing. But you know what a plant looks like when it's flourishing? When the soil's right and the water's right and it's just really just, wow, the thing's doing so well. There's miracle grow on it and everything and the thing's flourishing. That's the idea behind 
blessedness. That's the biblical idea of blessedness, of shalom, of uh, flourishing. That's, that's what God wants. He wants your deepest and authentic happiness. So, but you look at the list here. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, now, we look at that word poor, and we immediately think of poor people. And guess what? We're supposed to. I mean, Jesus knows that, that uh, when he says, the, he says the poor, we go, oh, I know what poor look like. But friends, it's a very specific thing said. Blessed are the poor, not for lack of monetary resources, not for the lack of shelter, not for the lack of new clothes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus knows what he's doing. He says, blessed are the poor. And everybody goes, oh, poor, I know what poor looks like. I've seen a homeless guy. Think of a homeless person. Think of somebody who's bitterly poor. You, You see that? Jesus wants you to see that. And he says, okay, I want you to take that. And I want you to understand, I'm talking about the inside of you. That's you. That's you before a holy God. Uh, blessed are the people who know that they're poor in spirit. The ones who don't know go, I'm awesome. Oh, yes, I've been a wonderful person. I'm just trying my best to be the most wonderful person I can be. That's, that's a person who's not in a state of blessedness. A person who is in a state of blessedness goes, ah, if God is really like he says he is, then I'm bankrupt, morally, spiritually bankrupt. Well, guess what you get? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So don't, be, don't think downtrodden in a physical sense. Um, imagine the poorest thing you've ever seen, and um, that, that's the idea um, about our poverty of spirit. And I'll tell you, too, there's a, this really interesting thing. At the end of verse 10, there's, there's, there's eight Beatitudes, okay? Some people say nine uh, because of, uh, of verse 11. But basically, 11 continues on verse 10, being persecuted because of righteousness' sake, being persecuted because of Christ. 10 and 11 are really together. So think of eight Beatitudes, okay? Eight blessings. Blessed are these people. Blessed are these people. Blessed are these people. At the beginning of it, you've got blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, And at the end of it, verse 10, you've got, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's called an inclusio. That's like two two bookends that hold the ideas together, and the stuff in between all connects. It makes sense. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, blessed are these people. And there's this logical order that unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. These are not random statements. These are intentional things that Jesus is saying in order. Now, as we move on, please know that these things, these blessings, are not uh, tailor-made for you. Oh, mine is, um, I'm meek. Oh, really? Well, mine is, I'm hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Don't do that. You are wrong, wrong, wrong. This is a description of what God is doing in every single Christian. You don't get to pick your little favorite. The, the, Jesus is going in a sequential order, um, each one amping it up as we move on through. So let's continue. You've got mourning. You've got, you've got uh, poor uh, poverty of spirit. Um, and then what happens because of that poverty of spirit? Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you ever go to a funeral... And the preacher says, uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You, he's probably not, he probably doesn't know what he's doing. 
uh, because that is completely taken out of context. That is not to say that, that God doesn't um, uh, tend to the troubled heart, but this is in the context of the gospel. Now, if he points it in the context of the gospel, yay, okay? But the idea here is that somebody is poor of spirit, they know their moral bankruptcy, and they mourn over that moral bankruptcy, they, they feel it. They feel the transgression against God. That, that's a normal thing that a redeemed heart would do is that they mourn over sin. Now, let's go on to verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, the earth. That's another layer that continues on. If you're, if you're broken over your sin and you see that you're morally bankrupt, you mourn over that. What does it make you do? What does it, what does it turn you into? Someone who's cocky? No. It, it turns you into someone who's meek. You know, you see a sinner out there and they annoy you, don't they? Oh, these sinners with their sins. They're so annoying how they get in my way and they're selfish and they leave their shopping cart right in the middle and I would never do that. And you ever been stuck in the left uh, turn lane where the guy in front of you doesn't want to get a ticket in Germantown and so they, uh, and they trap you out there and you're sitting there and everybody that's making a left turn goes... Just searing at you, and you're like, no, I'm horrible. Uh, like they've never done that. We've all done that. But you know, but you drive on, yeah, buddy, why don't you back up? You know, we don't like it in other people. Well, that, that's, not what, uh, that's not what moral bankruptcy produces. Um, it produces poverty of spirit, mourning over that, and then meekness. And I'll tell you, there's no greater picture of meekness than um, observing a savior who withholds all of his divine powers so that he can have nails nailed into his hands. I mean, when he puts his hand out there and they put a nail on it and they put a nail through it, he's saying, I'm letting you do that. I am withholding my raw, divine, fiat-making power, and I'm letting this happen. That's a meek savior. Now, that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be withholding our power, going, you know what? Morally bankrupt, I'm sad about that, and that humbles me. It doesn't embolden me. It humbles me. We move on. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, again, it's not hunger and thirst like poverty, like physical, but Jesus is making a parallel that we can understand to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be needy, to need sustenance. Um, He's applying that spiritually, and he's saying, Don't worry, you'll be satisfied. Hey, if you want to keep your finger there and flip somewhere, this is well worth our time to go to uh, Psalm 63. Uh, Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. By the way, uh, that's, that's why Thirsty Girl is called Thirsty Girl. Do you know that? Because of thirsting for God, fainting for God, like, like a dry and weary land where there is no water. Um, oh, yeah, we could go on. And, oh, well, shoot. Yeah, look at verse five. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I mean, that, that, that's the idea, ladies and gentlemen. Um, your sin um, uh, shows your bankruptcy. You're, you mourn over that. And uh, you're, you're humbled over that, and you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, notice this. Of those four, of the eight Beatitudes, those are vertical in nature, aren't they? 
They have to do with your standing with God. Um, how, do, how, do I, how do I fare with this God who is holy, holy, holy? Does he receive me? Does he hear me? Will he have me? Is my eternity secure? Well, I can tell you that the gospel is this. Uh, your eternity is not secure unless you receive the Lord of glory who came to this earth to die for you on a cross in your place. Are you a guilty sinner? Um, I don't know. You ever had a spanking? You ever had to be in timeout? You ever had to go to your room? You ever felt shame? You ever promised something and you didn't follow through with your promise? You ever pledged to love someone more than anybody else and then you hurt her or him? You feel those things? Well, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's, that's the, the, the state of fallen man. But God sent a savior to rescue us and the transaction gives us the kingdom of heaven. But it starts with an acknowledgement of poverty of spirit and everything that spills from that. That's our vertical relationship. We now move on to a horizontal relationship. Verse six, uh, seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Uh, Now that doesn't mean get busy and show some mercy so God can uh, give you a standing ovation and let you in and Peter will let you in the pearly gates. No, no, no. You see where it is in the order. It, It doesn't even get to the horizontal stuff until the vertical stuff is discussed, Okay. So don't, don't mix up the order and go, well, I guess I got to be a better person so God will like me. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is the first four. But it fleshes out in everyday life like this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you've been shown mercy, one of the hallmarks of your being shown mercy is you go, you're a sinner too. Hey, uh, when I did college ministry years ago, I'm straying from my notes slightly, but um, I would tell, I've told you this before, but I would tell them, I would say you will cross a giant line of maturity the day you say, my parents are flawed and my parents are sometimes confused and my parents are sometimes hurting. My parents don't have all the answers. My parents are flawed. When a, when a young person steps over that line, they step into a whole new world of maturity as a person, right? Sometimes... Um, they don't do it till they're 29. Sometimes they don't do it till they're 41 and their, you know, 17-year-old hates their guts and they go, oh, I did that to my parents. How awful I, they must have felt. And sometimes people never get it. Sometimes they're 79 years old and they still don't get it and they're still immature. But I'm telling you, when you step over that line and you go, ah, oh, they're flawed, you, you, you step into a great uh, spot of maturity. Well, what I'm saying to you is this. When you've received mercy... You all of a sudden start to perceive the world differently. You go, you know what? Hurting person, hurting person, hurting person, flawed, 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 confused, frightened. I mean, uh, if, you're, if you've been shown mercy, you, you, you desire to show mercy to others. Not perfectly, of course, we're sinners, but you desire to show mercy. How about this, verse 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What, what does that have to do uh, with? It has to do with righteous living. It has to do with heart righteousness. It has to do with living a life that desires to be in God's will, will and fellowship. Verse nine, peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Um, they shall be called sons of God's, sons of God. And you know, friends, there's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. You know that? Difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peacekeeping is stopping things from blowing up. Okay, so... Things, haven't, things aren't blowing up, 
So uh, I've kept the peace. Peacemaking is hard. Peacemaking requires sacrifice. Peacemaking uh, is saying hard things. Um, uh, it, it, it's tough. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, there's, there's many a mother and daughter um, who, who are peacekeepers, but they're not peacemakers. And um, there are many a relationship. What I'm saying to you is that if, if peace has to be forged, then the, the, the responsibility is on you. In fact, um, Jesus will go on to say um, in, in the next chapter to he'll say, uh, hey, um, if you remember that your brother has something against you, um, leave your gift at the altar. I don't want it. I don't want your gift. You know what I want you to do? I want you to go to your brother, and I want you to be a peacemaker. That's what I want you to do. That's the same Jesus in the same sermon talking about living life. I don't want your gift. I want you to go make peace. Making peace is hard. Uh, Last one. Um, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's that inclusio again, that kingdom of heaven thing. Um, You know, um, being persecuted uh, is easy to do. All you got to do is be a jerk. <laughs> and you go, oh, I'm persecuted. Oh. But it's, it's, it's being persecuted because of righteousness. It go, Jesus goes on to say in verse 11 and follower, but blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Okay, so just because we're jerks doesn't equal persecution. And I've told you this before too, that um, we were downtown Chicago years ago and it was like 18 degrees, and it was so cold. We were down on Michigan Avenue for a night, and we're walking, and you know the water tower and all that, the old water tower. They got the lights and everything. It's really groovy. And there were these three guys evangelizing. And by when I say evangelizing, I'm using air quotes if you're uh, listening to this. Evangelizing. They were basically screaming in, in your face about hell and you and your situation and all that. And I'm like, dude, look, I'm on your team, uh, and and you're offending me horribly. <laughs> um, and I, one guy picked up on it. And he said, uh, he said, he said uh, are, you a, are, you believe, are you a Christian? I said, yeah, I sure am. I, I'm, a, I'm a believer. I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian pastor in Memphis. And, uh, and he said, uh, you, you don't agree with our methods, do you? And I said, well, I'm not saying God can't use anything he wants, but uh, in 18-degree weather on Michigan Avenue at Christmas when the traffic is pushing you and you're screaming in my face, um, I think you would do much better to hold somebody's hand when they're hurting um, and to, to sit with them all night and then share the gospel. Um, don't call that persecution when you're just being a jerk. The idea is being persecuted because of righteousness. Now, to close, these are marks of each believer. Um, these are synonyms, friends. When you look at this list of Beatitudes, we've got to close it up. When you listen to this list of Beatitudes, being shown mercy, seeing God, being called children of God, inheriting the kingdom of God, all these benefits that come, um, these are marks of all true believers. They're not just pick and choose. Um, closing up our comments here, listen to this. Jesus did not come, this is from a guy named Charles Price. Jesus did not come to preach ethics, or to refine a moral code, but to invade the life of ordinary human beings with the life of God and consequently transform their behavior from within. That's a great quote. Jesus didn't come to go, hey, I got a new list of rules for you. Follow these and God will applaud. No, no, no. The idea is 
um, that he invades your life. He invades the life of ordinary men and women and consequently transforms their behavior from within. And here is from Revelation 12.10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Friends, that future reality looks great, doesn't it? The kingdom of God comes in its final, uh, its final sweep. The kingdom is consummated. That looks awesome, doesn't it? All things redeemed. Everything set at right. Pre-Edenic pre, um, state and better. Sounds pretty great. But ladies and gentlemen, the kingdom of God is now. These blessings and benefits are now. You have a heavenly father now. You're heard now. God is doing this forging work in you now. Last thing, and I'll close with this. I said something first hour, and you know they looked at me like this, like, you, like, the, like they will second hour if I say this. But I said, you know, I get up there and I, I say, hey, everybody, who wants to sing? Nobody? Okay. I get up there, I lead worship, and I say things like, this is a heavenly activity. This is an eternal activity, and I, I, I could just feel everybody go, yeah, what well, sure, dude. Um, warm it up, warm it up so we can get the preacher, get the real action going here, you know, a little warm-up act. It gets me in the mood. I hear that all the time. Oh, I love your music. It just gets me in the mood. I'm like, what am I doing this for? Or people will go, well, you know, some people like music, some people like sports. Yeah, but the early church wasn't playing ultimate Frisbee in, in the worship service, you know? Do you, do you see that gathered worship, God's people coming together for a specific, explicit event where we're focused on the truth of the Bible and God's word, do you not see that that's a heavenly activity? That it's not just some little sing-along, it's us getting together in the presence of God as a people. I will be their people and they will be my God. Well, this is a description of God's people and what he's doing in the lives of them. Eternal things in the now. Let's pray. Father, um, we are morally bankrupt, and that uh, has caused in us a um, mourning over our sin and even a despair that would drive us to the cross. We thank you, Lord, that that produces other great benefits like our meekness, our reliance upon you for all things. Um, our, 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 it affords us a right relationship with you, and then that spills over into a relationship with the world around us. Uh, hallmarks of who we are, your eternal work in the now, even though we're in the tension of the already and the not yet. Help us, God, um, invade us um, to the core. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate your patience. Oh, yeah, yeah. These are all my points. (laughs) I forgot I did those. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.